Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest today on Talk Design is Davy McKeithran. Davy has an architectural firm in Austin, Texas. Uh, you'll be able to find that at Davy McKeithran Architecture. We'll post all those things anyway at the end of the podcast and on Talk Design. And we met through a fabulous photographer friend of mine, uh, Leonard Fomansky. And you'll see uh, I have a podcast there from Lenny um, as well. And we've just had the most fascinating chat, Davey and I, and lovely stories that we've got to share. So, Davey, welcome to Talk Design Podcast. It's wonderful to have you here, and thank you so much for making the time. Cool. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you today, uh, Adrian. We've had a, a good discussion so far, so I'm, I'm wondering uh, where it's going to go from here. <laughs> so am I. Let's see. <laughs> Um, you know, like, as you say, we've had this really cool discussion so far, and there's some points I'm going to come back and touch on. Tell us a little bit about um, your journey into architecture, because, uh, you know, you, you kind of started this game a little late, and you've been in the uh, creative industry kind of zone for a bit before this, and it certainly shows up in the fabric of your work, and also in the passion for what you do and your passion for creative stuff so tell us a little bit of a timeline journey there um well you know i uh i spent my 20s as a as a rock and roll dreamer uh, i had this uh i was sure that i was going to spend my life hanging out with bono and Mick Jagger, uh you know behind behind stage at that summer awards show but uh uh, the music industry was a brutal, terrible place to be. Um, and uh, so, but I spent my 20s uh, traveling around with a bunch of friends around the country, uh, playing music and writing songs and recording records and, and doing all these beautiful, passionate things that um, were very inspirational to all of us. And we were really honestly living the dream. Uh, and uh, a couple record deal, deals went sour. Um, as as expected when when you're a musician uh, when you understand the industry right yeah um, it, the the realization came after after uh, the second one that you know the, the the industry sort of leaves the musician powerless um, until a certain level right so um, because I mentioned Bono before or something you know like Bono he's got a, he's got enough legitimacy in his career and enough licensing rights and enough things that he has power now uh yeah. he's got the level. but up until then up until then the balance is definitely tipped upside down towards the record labels uh power and it takes a long time before it uh before it switches over right yeah that has to the magical moment you know uh and so we were not fortunate enough to to find that right spot um but you know, we were also we were playing indie rock music um, that we were we were trying to be a little edgier, and we weren't trying to play music for the masses. We were trying to do things that excited us and got us, you know, got got us excited and, and gave us the reasons uh, to get out and travel the country in a dilapidated van and 
you know, play for <laughs> 10 people in the middle of nowhere um, and, and, you know, make 10 new friends and then move on to the next city. And, and you know, so we weren't really playing the pop songs that that you would hear on the radio. So that was probably a disadvantage to us. But we, we were playing, we were doing the thing that we were passionate about. Uh, was it? Was with that? Was there anything in the timing of it that, um, if you look back and you go, we were ahead of our time, or we were behind our time, or you know, had we been, had we had we seen something uh, different in how the industry worked, if we'd understood something, was there any key little point that you go, ah, oh, that would have been that, that would have been the shifting point that made it, maybe would have made a difference, and we wouldn't be talking about architecture, we'd be. Uh, I'd be trying to get to you through Bono's people, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, well, the I think for me, I, I, I was I was sort of a latchkey kid growing up. Um, both my um, my parents were were divorced, and my mother was raising us, and she worked a lot to support us, and um, I was to my own devices for the most of the day. So everything that I wanted, I sort of had to create um, because. Uh-huh. Well, you know, my mom was taking me to the toy store. We were, we were, didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, my first skateboard I made out of a piece of plywood and some roller skate wheels that, uh, some old roller skates that were in the garage. It didn't function at all. And my friends made fun of me, but like that was the only opportunity I had to have a skateboard. Um, so that sort of mentality, I think I carried forward into when I was a musician. And, and so I booked all of our shows for the first seven or eight years um, be, because one of those things we're from Houston as well. So there wasn't a music industry in Houston that could support a band that was trying to do things nationally. Uh, so I just picked up the phone and started calling places and booking shows and, and did it all in a very DIY aesthetic. Um, and looking back on that now that, that sort of fit our, our persona as a band and, and our ethics but it didn't allow us to move forward in the industry probably at the rate that we could have if we would have had support behind us that had the connections, that had the ability to put us in front of the right people or to get us on the right tours with the right bands. Um, the way that the industry sort of functions, um, being from Houston, that didn't function for us that way. Um, there was a little bit of an industry in Austin at the time, so, um, but we didn't have those connections necessarily either. But so to answer your question, I think if I was, if I would have had a little bit more ability to lean on professionals, then we probably could have gone a lot further, but also we probably would have been a different band because someone would have been coaching us to, you know. Yeah, really. Like having a mentor of, a mentor of some kind might've made a difference to that journey. Right. Um, But persistence and um, determination and, uh, I'm a Kiwi, so, you know, like uh, Kiwi ingenuity, we would call it, of making things, you know, like you said about the skateboard. Um, you work with what you've got and you do what you can with it, but you don't just roll over and give up on it. You just keep moving forward. Even if even if it isn't quite right, you just keep moving forward because it gets you to the next point that you can do better again. Exactly, right, ethic. yeah. And so, yeah. you know, our first, um, we we started sending cassette tapes out to record labels. Um, my wife, I mean, sorry, my, my girlfriend at the time, her mother worked for like Xerox. So we, you know, would right. go into her, her building at night and print out all of our CD covers or our tape covers or whatever. And, and, <laughs> and then, and just any address we could find, we would send tapes to. And, um, and we ended up scoring a record deal from a record company out of Seattle through this process. Um, yeah. and, 
Um, so for, for me at the time, it sort of reinforced my, my thoughts about doing, you know, doing it my way and, and um, tackling the problem that's in front of you. And so we, you know, we signed with this record label and it was a huge party we had at South by Southwest. They, you know, we were at the Four Seasons and we had fresh squeezed mimosas, fresh squeezed orange juice mimosas. You know, we thought we were like, this is, we just, we made it. Like, this is it, you know. Um, exactly. Bono was in the green room. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so we were like, with like, you know, at that point it was like, wow, we made it, you know. And, uh, and then we signed the contract and uh, we started getting down to the nitty degree discussions as, as time was moving on, like, you know, we're preparing to record a record. And then um, about a month after we signed the record deal, a record company calls and says, hey, uh, bad news. Uh, the company that was funding us, the record label that was funding us, has pulled all the funding out. Um, and so we don't have any money, but don't worry. Like, we're going to get another deal. Uh, we've been talking to some other labels, so we're, we'll just, you know, just bear with us for a minute, and then we'll, we'll record your record as soon as we get some money. Two years later, um, we're touring on the same cassette tapes, you know, that we had made and yeah. uh, a bit disenfranchised now. Um, and uh, long story short, uh, it, it, it didn't turn out the way we thought it was going to turn out. Um, um, so, you know, I'm in my mid twenties at this point, um, my uh, not completely disenfranchised. And so we just put together another band and start over and start and start grinding those wheels again and, and getting out and playing music for people across the country and, building a, a fan base and meeting friends and building our network and doing the same thing over. Um, and, uh, and then um, at some point some, some internal things happened within the band and that band dissolved and um, getting close to 30 now. And uh, I, one of my friends bands from Austin said, Hey, why don't you come join us? We're doing the, we're, we're, they were being, they, they had a, a great track record of success from the th kind of things that we were doing from an indie rock perspective. And uh nice. So I joined up with these guys and we, and we toured around for a couple of years and they had a record deal that was very, very good record deal with an independent label. And then of course that record label gets bought out by a major corporation who dissolves that record label. And um, long story short, again, disenfranchised once more. And uh, um, so uh, looking around. Isn't it interesting journey, eh? Because the passion of music um, only gets realized, I suppose, in the big scene of it. Um, once you crack the record labels, money making machine, um, and up until then they've got you both hands tied and your creativity is kind of locked into somebody's budget that may or may not let it out. It's, uh, the realization right. of how business works over, or, or the music industry, <laughs> not just the music industry, a lot of business works over the fact of uh, the just the passion and drive and the the love of creativity. Um, yeah, by the time you put the money machine around it, it can control absolutely everything. We've all seen we've all seen things that have been designed, um, and no disrespect to accountants here, but by the accounting side of a business, you know, we've all seen that. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. And, and I think the biggest takeaway I had from that was like in the music industry, and at least until some level, you have no control over your career. You, you, you sort of, you can, you can wallow in this like obscurity of, um, just doing your passionate thing, which is fine and great. And, and it's very respectable, but, um, you know, at some point, if you want to have health insurance or a mortgage or, um, 
be able to uh, send your kid to school with with lunch money, uh, you know, then sure. you need to, you know, to grab control of your career and, 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 and guide your own path. And so that, I think that was the big eye-opening moment for me and um, moved on from there. It, um, it's interesting. You said to me before you uh, were on, on the road and somebody gave you a book, um, Fountainhead, and tell us about how that just, opened your eyes and because clearly creative person you know like you make music you do all these things it, you could have done a lot of different things with your levels of creativity but this uh reading fountainhead tell me about that yeah so we were we were on tour and you know as you as you imagine there's like five six hour drives you know and you're sitting there bored out of your mind so i, I was reading the fountainhead um and uh sort of clicked for me like you know there's this like the protagonist Howard Rourke is this very like um, very individualist, uh, very creative. You know, going against the uh, the norm, the kind of the things that we were doing musically. You know, we were trying not to play uh, music that our parents would like. You know, we were trying to push those boundaries, and um, and so he sort of struck a, a nerve with or struck a chord with me that this is this is what I'm doing musically, but this is what he's doing uh, architecturally. And, and I did never think about architecture as a creative pursuit. I always just assumed it was like, you're just drawing floor plans for apartments, you know, or you know something very <laughs> mundane. And I hadn't really ever thought That's about tough. it as an artistic endeavor. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, the book, I mean, cliche as it is, it, 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 turned, it changed my mind and, and uh, put me on a new path. And so... Um, I got back from, from that tour and told the guys like, Hey man, like I'm, I'm sort of done. I'm going to, I need to do something different. And, um, the, uh, the, I moved to Portland and they had an architecture program. They already called him and talked it through with them and moved out there and started architecture school. Uh, and, um, went from there. Wow. Wow. That's a cool journey. And so if there's a parallel between architecture and music for you, I certainly, um, I, I certainly have my own, but, um, tell me if your parallel, like that you see between it and how one sense of the creative journey is, um, backed up by the creative journey that you've taken now, what, what crosses over in the, in the thinking? Well, it's a, it's a very, it's a very, parallel uh, creative process in the sense that um, when you're writing a song, you, you've got your guitar, it's, you know, sometimes it's with a group of, of friends and sometimes you're just sitting there by yourself, but you just start doodling on the guitar, you know, and, and um, at some point something sort of clicks and then, well, okay, so now I've got this part and I really like this part and like, how do I find another part that sort of complements it? Um, and so you sort of write a song in this like linear path of putting something together it, it's hard to ever write one piece and then write a separate piece the other day another day and then put them together now they work they work perfectly as a song together you know like they it's part of this that same journey but you know writing a song um just as an architecture you you can be a solo practitioner um you can be a solo musician um but if, as soon as you bring in other people and now this thing evolves differently right so you've got more yeah. sort of brains more cooks in the kitchen and and uh hopefully you've put the right band together you know in your architecture firm that uh you know your drummer is playing to the same beat that you're trying to play to but 
you know, these layers that you create in a song or the similar layers that you create in architecture, all it's rhythm, like they're all of these sort of terms that we use in architecture are the same terms that we use um, in music. But you you work hard and you and you and you, you you change things and you try other things and you then you try to add your lyrics in there, which might be the color, or might be the texture, and then you um, you build this thing um, from a small a small idea up into a completed product, and you might and you might record it right. So now you've got something to present of all of this this journey that you've gone through and this and this progression, and you've got something that you're now putting out there and saying like this is what I am about this song. And so, alternatively, in architecture, you do the same thing. You know, there's, it's yourself or other people that are contributing to this this drawing set and this idea. And then um, either yourself is building them, it or a builder is building it. Even in the, the, some of those people aren't even in the band. Some of them, what was that? Because they're the client, or the <laughs> you know, like <laughs> right. that that it, it, you're you're creating it for them, just like you're creating um, music for an audience. Uh, for yourself, but also for an audience, you know, you're creating, and those right. people aren't in the band, you, but they have a you, they have a a, a, a bearing over you, what happens. You've got a structural engineer, right, in in, in architecture, and you've got a recording engineer, and and uh, music. So you know, you're only yeah. as good as your whole team. And uh, if your recording engineer is tone deaf, well, that's not going to help you at all. And <laughs> if your structural engineer is uh, scared of, of, of cantilevers, well, that's not going to help you either. Yeah. It's a fascinating parallel, isn't it? Like, um, and, and, you know, most creative endeavors, um, in my experience uh, around the globe of, and working in, you know, a lot of creative different fields and stuff and, working training people and you know innovation systematic innovation and stuff like that as well all creative processes kind of wash down to a very similar thing and either they're very solo or they are mixed and it takes a team to pull it together to make something and then keeping the art form so that it becomes um I didn't say recognizable. I don't know that that's the right word. The art form, so that it stays pure, so it stays closer to what it should be, is actually the other key. You know, like um, I think of you know recording music in a studio, and also when uh, you know the art form of a piece of architecture just gets lost uh, because there's too many changes. There's too many pieces. You know, sometimes I know I'll draw something. And we'll get through, you know, four or five different sort of pieces of it or reiterations of it. And then I'll go, you know what, I'm just starting from scratch. <laughs> Screw all that up, put it in the corner and start over. Um, because there's just been too much mucking with what was okay at the start. Um, and you bring it back to being pure again. And I think in music that happens quite often as well. There's too much and you lose the, you know, the rhythm gets lost somewhere in the whole picture because too many people have got too many opinions. Um, keeping it in an art form is really key. Well, Tell you me. know, it's like uh, someone's got to be the lead singer at some point, um, and everyone else has got yeah. to to find their, their place in that. It's not not even from a, a, an egotistical perspective, but... Um, not everybody can be the lead singer. Someone, someone has got to sort of lead the charge and, and uh, be that figure. That's, 
that's the same in a firm, like the same same in an architectural firm. You know, somebody's got to take the lead on a project and create something um, and keep it pure to where it's headed. Tell me, um, I, I want you to, t- to to share the journey of building your architectural practice um, in Austin and um, the journey between uh, starting out at home and ending up with your space now and your your workshop as well, which I think is really cool. And go well, that sort of segues back to creating, you know, your skateboard out of uh, some old roller skates and a, and a piece of board as well, having that, that ability to have a workshop. So share some of that story with us because it's pretty fascinating. Adrian, I'm having a real hard – my signal's getting real choppy right now. Um, okay. Just give me one note second. I'm trying time. to yeah, it might trying be to get me. my employees. To, not sure. I was just I'm trying to ask my employees if they're all streaming music to maybe stop for a hot minute. Um, let me see. It could be. Uh, it could be at my end though as well. I'm looking at the moment. I've got fairly good coverage, but um, we. Yeah, we were fine up until just about the last two things. Okay, he, he just told me everyone stopped stop streaming music, yeah. so we'll see where we go from there. <coughs> Sorry, so I didn't hear I didn't hear that question. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, um, I've got to think of what it was again. Let me just go make a mark here. Twenty one fifty nine. Um, tell us a bit of uh, share. Start again. Can you share with us? a bit of the story around um, progressing from, you know, starting out you on your own and uh, working from home and then to where you are now with your studio and also your um, workshop, which I love the, the workshop part of what you've got there as well because it just adds another layer and it took me sort of in a segue from when you were saying about making a skateboard, you know, out of some roller skates and, uh, and a piece of board and that, that kind of thing where again, it's, um, it's a growth thing. And now, you know, you, you sit in your own studio, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the inputs and stuff that you had to get there. Tell us a little bit about that story. Cause I think it's pretty inspiring for people who maybe are starting out, or maybe people who are looking for their next segue in their business as they grow. Right, right. Well, um, I, I worked for um, an architecture firm uh, for about five years that we did a lot of civic work, uh, a lot of big projects. Um, and um, they're really, they take a really long time. You know, the projects are three, four years long. Uh, and uh, so I think you know, I worked there for five years and I probably really only had like three projects completed, right? Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I find myself when I'm reading a magazine about architecture, I'm reading, wow, I'm not reading architectural record. I'm more inspired by the smaller scale of residential. So I really wanted to sort of push, um, the firm into doing more residential, which wasn't really something that, um, we didn't really have a foothold there. It was hard to sort of attract business in that, in that sense. But, um, at some point I decided to go out on my own, uh, and start my, and just, and, find the projects that I wanted to do and then get a little more control over what I was doing for, for eight to 12 hours a day. Um, so I started my firm and, uh, so you were only like working garage. short days as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. <It's> just <laughs> part-time architect. Um, yeah. 
and I was working out of my garage. That. I was going to say you had to step that up a little. Yeah, twelve hours isn't <laughs> yeah. going to make it. <laughs> I'm double time now, uh, and uh, so I uh, we had a finished out garage at my house uh, that we weren't using the room for, and uh, so I started working out of there. Um, and uh, probably within the first six months, I had hired an employee because uh, I had 10 projects to myself and it was just a, a bit overwhelming. And so I hired an employee and then we were rocking along and about uh, maybe like another year after that, we would decide to add another person into the mix. Uh, and then we had, you know, then before you know, we had four people and we're a few years in at some point and um, four people working out of my house. And as, as we all know, like architects hours have now increased to uh, be, um, you know, nine o'clock in the morning to seven or eight o'clock at night. So my poor wife was leaving to go to work in the morning with employees at her house already. She was coming home from work at night and there'd be people in her house. And uh, and so it was only slightly there's a slight bit of tension caused by that. Um, but, you know, and it's, sometimes it's I would, the key. The key factor in there, Davy, is is that she was still coming home. She was. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe had, just have a, a talk to you. Yeah, she had a huge, a huge shoe collection that was much more important to her than uh, not coming home. Uh, and uh, and so you know, sometimes we'd have those deadlines where we're working until ten or eleven o'clock at night, and so I'd, I'd emerge from the studio. And there'd be like a cold plate of food sitting on the counter. My wife had already gone to bed. <laughs> and uh, it was it was an obviously unsustainable path. But, you know, at the scale that we were at, you know, four people. Um, so we needed an office space. And, um, you know, being an architect, we're, we weren't making a whole lot of money. And so the idea of renting some, some space just meant that now I was going to make less money than my, my employees, if not just lose money altogether. In the architecture firm by by leasing a space, and so we sort of never we we looked around and then like you, you know you would be like oh man fifteen hundred bucks a month that's so much money, and so you'd you'd think about it you'd think about it you'd think about it then that space is gone and then uh, you'd look around and you'd find another space six months later now it's two thousand dollars a month right and you're like oh my gosh I you know that's too expensive it's only fifteen hundred bucks six months ago I'm not gonna do that and then it's twenty three hundred you know it's, it's ever increasing yeah. thing that kept going and going. And, uh, and so my wife and I, we had, we had collected a, a rent house on our street. We had got a little neighbor deal from someone. And so we got this uh, little bug for investment property. And then we bought another investment property that we were going to maybe move the architecture firm into. Um, well, so we had to calculate, okay, well, it's going to cost us 1200 bucks a month to own this place. Well, we could rent it out and make, you know, four or 500 bucks in profit or we can move the architecture firm into it and well, let's just rent it out. We'll get, we'll rent, we'll yeah. put the architecture firm in the next one, you know, or something. And uh, so anyways, we didn't, we didn't, we still are now we're, now we're five employees. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, now we're six employees. And so myself <laughs> and, the, and the youngest, the newest person in the firm was sitting at the dining room table because there was no more room for us in the garage. And, uh, you know, so now, now she couldn't just like put the plate of food on the counter and go to bed because I was looking at her. I was watching her from the dining room table. Uh, <laughs> and, and so was the so was the youngest employees going with my intern, plate of right. food. Yeah, yeah exactly. She was, yeah, it was she's cooking for three now, uh, and uh, and so we we just kept looking. Now we're looking for places to buy for the architecture firm, and 
And commercial property, of course, is more expensive than residential property. And so, you know, we kept balking on some of that stuff because it, our, our budget was $300,000 now and we couldn't find anything even close to that. So um, at some point, we finally found this this little old house that was being used as a commercial space and it was zoned commercial. And uh, we, my wife and I uh, bought the place and we spent the next seven months tearing it apart and putting it back together to make it a respectable architecture firm um, that's that we could attract clients into and that that expressed our values as a firm um, because it was kind of a, it kind of was an old grandma house before and it had never been sort of updated since the 40s and um, we didn't want it to feel like that didn't represent us as a firm but the the biggest selling point for me um, was that it had a 700 square foot workshop in the back. Um, yeah, how cool is that? It was That's really cool. I bet you there was a bigger selling point for your wife. That was she got her dining room table. <laughs> she got a dining, yeah, she didn't care how much the place cost. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. You'll you she'll whip you until you earn enough to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she'll start taking control of the contracts. Uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, actually, ironically, before we bought that first rent house, we had decided that we were going to put the architecture firm in the backyard. Um, that uh, we were going to build it in the backyard. And that, so at least we could have some separation between the employees and her personal space. So so you would have built like an ADU in the yeah, backyard? Exactly. Yeah. We built an ADU. Um, and we had, we had designed this little 200 square foot little building because we didn't need a permit for it if it was under 200 square feet. Um, and, uh, and we weren't actually zoned for an ADU where we lived. So we actually had to do it as if it was just a tool shed. Um, right, and, and so that was going to be, and we're going to put a little window unit or something in that, you know, to control the place, the climate control place. So yeah. we had we had designed it out, um, and we had we had a, a so we built a, we we're going to build a 400 square foot slab, 200 square feet was going to be the studio, and we're going to have a 200 square foot patio on the front, a covered patio that we could use to do some fabrication. Uh, cool. And so we actually poured the slab. Uh, when our neighbor came up to us and said, Hey, you want to buy my house? Cause we've been bugging him for a couple of years cause they had moved out and they had kept it as a rental. And we, and we were great friends with them. We're like, Hey, if we ever decide to sell, let us know. We'd be interested. And uh, so of course we, we poured the slab and said, Hey, you want to, you want to buy my house? And so we made a deal. And so now the, the slab is um, just sitting there and we didn't have any money to build the studio now cause we did this rental property. And uh, <laughs> we even but you've got a half court, you've well, nearly a full court basketball <laughs> court out there. We do, and we still do. <laughs> <laughs> I've got clients who'd love that, you know. <laughs> yeah, we 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 call it our, our roller skating rink. Um, it's a, uh, and so so we, we uh, you you haven't turned it into a skate bowl though. You haven't gone and put ramps and everything there so that you can skate in it, skate on it. No, I've got no money left. <laughs> we we just keep investing in in in, in things. Uh, so we, yeah, we 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 tore this building apart back to the studs. And my wife, to to all the respect in the world that she could possibly get from me and more, was here with me every day, every night, every weekend. Uh, little complaints you know no big complaints no like we're gonna spend saturday here again no she was the one like saying let's get this thing built so i can get you guys out of my living room my dining room my bathroom my <laughs> uh and and we tore, and we used the shop to to fabric to do the construction right so we kept all of our tools and we did all of our cutting cool. so we used the shop to 
to rebuild the studio or to rebuild the office. And, uh, and um, I think a little part of this puzzle is that we were always fabricating little pieces of our projects for our clients um, because mainly we would design something for the, for the client and they would get it priced out and it was expensive. And so they, they, would, they would have to either cut that out or we would have to um, build it to whatever their budget would be. Just A, we, we, we wanted that part to be in the project um, and yeah. we also enjoy the fabrication process. It has always been something that we did um, or I did before I started my own firm, but always get involved in public art projects or little volunteer things where we were building dog houses for, for charity auctions or something like that. It was always a yeah. part of, of the things I was already doing. So, um, and we started, we were building doors for people or we did some structural steel even. And so we built a cool like architectural column that was um, very articulated and, you know, to get a price for it and it's like $8,000 and the client has a thousand dollar budget. And so, you know, we would, we'd buy the steel for $900 and, and earn a hundred dollars. $8,000 of your time putting it together. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, and I think, but like the, besides the fact that we really wanted those elements in our project, um, we also designed ourselves into a corner sometimes too, or like, you know, maybe we, the, the way the column was articulated was based on structural loads coming from many directions. So we sort of had sure. to, the column was a very functional um, um, piece of chaos. And uh, so, you know, we, we designed ourselves into a corner a little bit. And so, you know, we'd build these things. And so now they're part of our lexicon. They're part of our, they're part of our uh, portfolio of work. They're now people are coming to us because of elements like that. And so, which this is this is where, where it becomes so special because it's something that other people don't do, and if they do do, it's priced it, it's priced at such a high price that it could make or break another piece of the project. So, it it often would get caught up in budget cuts as opposed to actually giving them the piece of art or the piece of um, that special element, and. Right. Uh, there's something very special about doing that, like, and having a workshop where you can actually work that out and do those things means that the next client, that, that client benefits, and then the next client benefits beyond that because when you're looking at what you can do there, you push yourself to a new space again and a new space again. And it also means you can make a prototype of something that you can give to a, you know, to a, a fabrication house if you need more than one and you can say, look, Here's, here's what we could do. We've already I, tested I designed it, right? a, Yeah, I designed a table um, for, it's a board table, and I'll do it in metres because I can't do it in feet, but it's six metres across, and it's a, a full round donut. And it's, um, it, so it's six metres, uh, what's that? Three, it's about 18, 18 feet, feet. Yeah, 18, maybe 19 feet across. And uh, it's... Um, about four feet wide and it, so it's like a big round donut that floats in the middle of a room and it sits only on eight legs and they're all cantilevered so you can't touch your feet on the legs so this thing just floats we call it the satin and it floats in the room and it had to go up in a lift it had to go up <laughs> yeah, pieces course, yeah. and be and be built there and um so i was like okay well it's a board table. I'm like, how am I going to get, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this thing to happen? And so um, 
yeah, did some sketching and stuff and then started with a with a fabrication shop, went and saw them and got them to start making me, you know, legs that we could test for weight loads and things like that. It's all very easy to model it. It's another thing to make it really work. <laughs> right. Drawing it's one thing, making it happen's another thing. And it can hold twenty four people in a board meeting. And I had to also be mindful of the fact of twenty four people decided to stand on it and dance. <laughs> and um would this thing just twist and collapse to the ground or could it hold their weight or what happens if they all stood on one side, um, you know, and so on. So it sits on these very fine eight legs. But again, that whole process, I didn't have a shop to do it in, but with um, myself and uh, a guy that I work in a lot with, um, we kind of built this thing and then, you know, we, we had it modeled and stuff once we kind of knew what structure we were going to use for it and then had it made had the had the table made you know and tens of thousands of dollars to make the table right right um but yeah something really special but you'd never get to do that unless you were practically hands-on and you you're prepared to solve the problems and 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 i think there's also some elements of um when you have a custom client who um, you know, they hire you for your work or your personality or whatever you did to convince them that they should hire you. But, you know, not a lot of residential clients have ever worked with an architect before, yeah. at least at least here in the States. And, and it's often the first time. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, people enjoy telling their friends at a party or whatever that like, oh, our architect made this, you know, like this table yep. that you're sitting at, our architect made this. It's something that, you know, not only are they sort of saying, oh, I work, I have an architect, but, you know, like, oh, and my architect made this table. I think it's a little bit of a, a, a bragging point that, 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 that makes the architect feel good if you're around, if you're around, the, you know, within earshot of that. But <laughs> um, it's, it's, they do feel like they got something special that something someone else is mostly not, most likely not going to get. Um, well, they can't go and buy that piece of furniture from anywhere. Right. They can't buy it. And so one of our first projects that we actually had where we had a lot of creative control um, was a was a full remodel of a house down to the studs. Um, and uh, we had a, a very trusting client and um, very excited client. And, and they really enjoyed design. And they were they were a proximity neighbor to me, like in the same neighborhood. That's how we met. And uh -huh. so we, uh, we designed some fun elements for them and some of the elements that we have to start fabricating because of said reasons. And um, at some point when we were in demolition, uh, I, I always like to dumpster dive too. Uh, and so I yeah. looked in the dumpster and there was these beautiful like 12 foot long Douglas fir two by 12 beams that had come out of the house when they were doing the demo. And wow. uh, they were a little chewed up from nails and whatnot, but they were a part of this house and they were in, in, they were not uh, cracked or broken. They were just, uh, they had like that character to them. And so um, I pulled them out of the dumpster and <laughs> brought them home and put them on my front porch on, you know, so they wouldn't be in the <laughs> rain. So my wife would have one more reason to recognize there was an architecture firm at our house. And, uh, and so they seasoned on my front porch for another six months. And we got to the end of the project and we were talking about furnishings and things like that with the client. And so we had, we had um, been sharing images of, of dining room tables that they were, that they were finding online and, you know, discussing what, which, which way to go. Um, they had a limited budget for a dining room table and because um, we had spent all of the money in the remodel. 
and of course uh and uh so all the tables were they were okay a little bit less than inspiring for what her budget was and so i one day i uh me and elliot who was working with me we we took those those two by 12s and we glued them all up into a big slab um and 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 then invited the client over to the house. We said, hey, why don't you come over? We want to show you something. And so she came over and we said, hey, check this out. And she was like, oh, that's cool. Is that like reclaimed wood? And we were like, well, yeah, it's, it came out of your house. And she was like, what? No way. And we were like, yeah, that, that came out of your house. It was in your dumpster and we dug it out. And she was like, that's awesome. And so we were like, we want to build you a table. Uh, and uh, I know your budget is small, but we'll do it for your budget. I think her budget yeah. was like 800 bucks or a thousand bucks or something. Wow. Um, yeah. And so um, we, uh, we, so then we, we planed the table down uh, from there, sanded it all down, got it and epoxied all the holes and made it this beautiful piece of wood. And then we started discussing like what we wanted to do for the structure. Um, and we designed this cool structure that had like a triangulated front where it sat on a point on the front, not all worked up to the back and had another triangle on the back. And it was a beautiful awesome. piece of structure. Yeah, and then so we built we uh we we built the frame. We tested it out of some other scrap metal we had, and we discovered that we had uh, uh, a pivot point on the front triangle. So if you were cutting a piece of steak yep. on the table, the table would start rocking, <laughs> and it would keep going after you stop after you stop. So well, then we had to solve. So we had to solve the problem of that. So we bought thicker steel, right? Of course, it just needs thicker steel. So we had, of course, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll go from six mil to 10 mil. Yeah, we'll right. just have more steel. Yeah. Have more steel. So we, we fattened the pieces and we had like two inch thick round bar or uh, round stock, you know, so that's gotta be thick, you know, stiff enough. And so, no, it still rocked. Uh, and so, um, so then we had to sort of go back and redesign. We, we kept it in place and designed some other vertical elements for it. And we actually, the, the design turned out really cool. It was the process that we went through and the fabrication and testing that we went through to, to end up with the result that we had, which was something was unique to the design that we started with and something we probably wouldn't have ever come to from the beginning. Um, but because of the fact that we were doing fabrication, we didn't hand that off to a fabricator and look like a bunch of morons, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, well, they would have been like, well, what? Yeah, you well, what you would have ended up with was a table that um, cut its own steak in the end. You know, you would have just shook it and put your knife there, and it would have sawed through the steak. <laughs> uh, and and so we, our first five years of fabricating elements for project, we did it all in the driveway. So if it was cold or rainy or you know whatever the the elements were outside, that's how we were fabricating. Um, and, and trying to paint things or, or clear coat things with like pollen falling on and settling on. Yeah. And, you know, like it was, it was a, so the shop was, you know, like number one priority. So we found the spot we're in now, you know, that was just like, I was like, I don't care what the house looks like. It has a shop with a roof. Yeah, really. It was sold on the shop. It, it, look, it, it adds so much, um, I suppose, process and beauty and, and, um, like fabric you know it, it deepens the fabric of your work when you can do these things and it's such a neat thing and when you've got a shop right there you things become possible things become possible and the client wins because things become possible right and again yeah and, and the, and the, the, the architecture has a a little bit deeper of a story to tell um yeah has a little bit more personalization to it, it has a little more of a connection to it um these custom elements that we designed for a client are personal to them 
Um, sometimes they can't, they have, they're a permanent part of the structure. So if they, if they move, the column stays there, but they can take yeah. their table with them, you know, those yeah. parts of the elements. Um, so that it's, it's, and it's, and it's exciting for us because, you know, pushing a mouse around is, is great and fun, but like getting out there and getting your face dirty and your hands dirty and like an, an entire day evaporating, you know, before you know it, because you were having, you were enjoying what you're doing and tackling and solving these problems with your hands. I always, um, I always go, it's the honest work. You know, when you actually physically create something, there's something that you get back for that. No, I always just term it as honest work. You know, I've done a day's honest work. The day the day drawing um, is not, to me, honest work. It, it's something I love to do, but it's like, it's like taking a day off. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, as much money as we lose when we do a fabrication project, it's like taking many days off. <laughs> Yeah, but it feeds the soul. Yeah, it absolutely. Feeds the soul, and that's key. Um, I love that story. I love the story of uh, your wife. Like, God bless her. Like, um, you know, going living living through that, and uh, then also just being right there with you to um, to create the the workshop and and the you know your studio now. It's it's fantastic. And the fact that you've got, you know, a half quarter in the backyard or a, <laughs> a, a roller skating rink. I think that's really cool as well. Great for parties, you know, come and have a party on the rolling skate, roller skating rink. Um, so tell me if, uh, if you were to do it all again, um, not that I can imagine why you'd want to change anything. If you were to do it all again, what would, what would you change? What would be the, what would, would be something that you go, you know what, we'd never do this piece again. We'd drop this. But if, if you were somebody was, you know, going, okay, well, where, where do I go from here? What would you, what would be the tip that would jump them forward 10 years? Oh, you know, if, if I was to do it again, I would hire an office manager day one. So all of those boring parts of the job can be done by someone else. So I can, you know, you can only focus on the things that you want to do. Um, some days I feel like an office manager here, right? Where do we have enough toilet paper? Do we, you know, is the uh, yeah. is the accounting where it needs to be, etc. Um, but you know, I think, and it, again, it's part of part of my 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 aesthetic of doing everything yourself. You know, like a, no one knows it more intimately than you do. No one, you know, can do it better than you do. That that mentality carries through in everything I do. So, um, you know, I, all the HR, all the, everything is done by myself. And, um, and so hiring, hiring, hiring out some of that work, but again, who knows today, I would say that, um, day that, you know. today you'd, you'd say that, but you don't have to do it. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> I'm having fun today talking to you. So it's a different story. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, but you know, I think that's it. And so, um, you know, I, it, we are living the dream of, of sorts, you know, like we're doing the things that we want to do. We're doing, We've gotten to the point in our in our work where we're getting to do the work that we want to do. Um, we're getting to use our hands on on fabrication. We're getting, you know, we're selective about the projects that we take on. Um, you know, if 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 anything, I would say maybe if I could find a, another three hours in the day, if we could find a twenty seven hour day, that'd be great. But um, you know, because you get to do, you'd get to do more of what you love. <laughs> Right, get to do more accounting, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, like, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's hard. So as an architect, you know, like you, uh, we we love the work that we do, and so we put in long hours and uh, for our passion and, and 
So uh, I, I don't know that there's another path that I could design for myself that would, would I'd end at the same spot. And so it's hard to think outside of that. Yeah. I, I It's interesting. Like um, my friend Richard Petrie always sort of says, you know, architecture, it must be a calling because you work so hard to do what you do and you know, you don't necessarily always get paid really well to do it. Um, and it takes a long time to end up with the projects that are the ones that you really, really want um, because it's a long cycle business, you know, like, and I, I go, it's so true, you know, like it, you have to just be prepared to do what it takes um, to get there. And it's joyful work. Um, when you when if you just did the drawing side of it and the client liaison side of it and the you know all that part of it is the joyful work and even i mean doing construction parts of it um but then all the office work and all the piece that makes the mechanics of the business work is the piece that takes probably 50 percent of the time but it uh it steals from the joy right it's it's an interesting interesting business you know whereas a, a lot of different businesses the it's not so so creatively um driven and also because it's a long stream business you know it takes it takes months to design something it's months of process with people and then it's months of um you know getting it ready and then it's months of it being built everything has this it's you don't build it overnight you don't draw it today and it's it's there tomorrow um, you know, it's not like printing t-shirts or something like that where you go, oh yeah, yeah, this. And it's significant. Um, it's got these high significant values for the client. You know, usually it'll be one of their biggest purchases um, in their life. It'll be significant to all their financial, even even if they've got a lot, a lot, a lot of money, it's still significant financially, whatever the, whatever the project is tackled. And if you can live inside it, it takes on a whole nother meaning as opposed to something that you drive past or that you, you know, it, it isn't where you call home. I always think that when we talk with, you know, like commercial architecture, it's really important, uh, but it's a completely different sense of creating a space that's a workspace and, uh, uh, you know, a, a space that might be a public space that fulfills a need in its moments um, but then you've got to have a place where you go home to and residential is going home. Um, right, right. And, and, you know, I think one of the special things about having an architect design home is it has all these special moments within this, within the place that, um, that you can, uh, be excited about and, and, you know, like creating music, let's say, uh, you know, you've, you've written a song, you've recorded a song and like, it's a, everyone loves the song, but how many times can you listen to that song over and over before you're like, I need a different song, but let's say you have a beautiful, like, uh, hand burnished plaster wall in your, in your bathroom, in your shower. And so, and every morning you take a shower, you probably don't get tired of looking at that beautiful handmade wall that, yeah. that just, you always find something new or beautiful in it. And, and I think that the lasting effects of architecture as, as something that's grounded in, in like a, you know, a handmade aesthetic, some came out of someone's uh, brain and, and went to someone's hand and, you know, all these, all this path of getting to where it's at. And then like, it's there to appreciate. I, I imagine um, 
that uh, you know, I, I don't have an architect design home, so I don't know. But I imagine that it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something that you're proud of and, and uh, wouldn't get tired. You have of. an architect designed office um, mm-hmm. fit out, yeah, that's in, true. In the studio, I, I like I live in a renovator as well, and it's interesting, you know, like. <clears throat> if you talk to you know, like Hugh, he lives in a renovator. If you talk to um, Kevin, he he work, he lives in a renovator. You know, often um, architects will take a place that already exists and and make it something new and special as well. Um, it's not just about starting from fresh every time. I love the fabric of a of a renovation where you it's got a history. And you can play with its history. You can bring some of it forward and you can get rid of other parts of it. Um, and I always think that a building, especially a well-thought-out building, should should last the test of time. You know, it should be able to stand for hundreds of years and, and it will get renovated regardless um, because how we live and our needs change. We look at what's happened with the COVID pandemic and, um, you know, home offices, home gyms and, uh, you know, separate offices at home for, for couples and <clears throat> school rooms and, you know, all these things that it's thrown into our mix of what people are going, you know, hey, what happens when if this happens again or when it happens again? What, how will we be better set up? How will, how will it ease our life? And, you, you know, you look at, I was in the States in March, and now we're in um, November, and America's still got you know a long way to go yet till it till till it gets some new normal as everybody says. But it's got a long journey ahead of it still, as as has England, as has you know like a lot of places. Um, so what we're living with now is going to shape our lives for the next. 10 years, 20 years, and in the sense of architecture, it's going to shape them from here forward. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting journey. And and as I say, needs change. Needs change, and because needs change, then that, that sort of like shifts it again in the game. You know, once you built servants' quarters and a place for the cook to cook um, so that you could eat your dinner, you know, but uh, nowadays you don't build servants' quarters and a place for the cook to cook. You You're the cook. And the servant is, yeah, you know, that's your bedroom. That's the servant's quarters. Hopefully you've got an ensuite. Right. Well, you know, now we're building, everyone's building home offices and home gyms. And so, you know, yeah. in, in, uh, in uh, 2050, you know, just not just around the corner, there's going to be like, you know, no one's going to be exercising anymore because there's going to be this, you know, the magic pill that, not the one that you see later at night on television, but, you know, the real one that's coming in the future. <laughs> no one needs to exercise anymore just because they're all beautiful and they're magically. Uh, so all these home yeah. offices are going to be like, or all these home gyms are going to be uh, useless spaces. Exactly. They won't be big enough for a theater. Remember when everybody built a theater, you know, like right. th- th- these are kind of zones that, that um, it goes through. And yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. And then, you know, great architecture gives the, and great design gives the opportunity for these spaces to be morphed for different needs at different um, periods of time over the, over the, the lifetime of the home and, uh, and the different families that may live in it as well. You know, people come into a home, they have it for maybe their, the rest of their lives, but Often they'll have it for a period of time. It might be 20 or 30 years even, and then it will be too big or it will have met its needs up until that point and they'll move again. 
Um, yeah, it's a fascinating journey. I think architecture, because it's uh, something that has a fair level of longevity um, when it's done well, a, a very long level of longevity, um, I think that it's one of the most incredible disciplines that of creativity because it, it shapes how people feel, how they live, how they safe they are, how they're protected from the elements, um, and how they view themselves, whether they're relaxed or happy or um, all those things come from within, but a space can make a big difference to how those play out. It's definitely um, something that I feel like you don't fully understand the value of an architect until A, you've, you've sort of either lived in an architect design home or um, you have an architect friend who won't shut up about architecture. Um, <laughs> and, you know, as, as I mentioned before, like many of our clients haven't worked with an architect before. So um, when we get into this process with them, um, they, they become a little bit overwhelmed with the amount of decision-making that has to go into the, the process. Um, mm -hmm. When we're designing a home for, for a client, we don't sort of, we don't go away into our little our little black box and and emerge six months later with like here's your design I hope you like it or you will like it we we have a very slow iterative process with our clients where we start to test pieces of it and then and then talk about it with the client and then you know and then we'll get the feedback and we'll test a little bit further and, and then meet back with the client um, rarely do we have the client that really is just like they they're just like do whatever you want and you know, I'll be happy with it. Right. So, um, but you know, the custom client, you know, we like to involve them in the process. And then, so like I said, they become a little overwhelmed with the amount of decision-making, but at some point there's a little hump that they get over where they're, they're fully invested in this as a, um, I wouldn't want to say it's a hobby, but they start to, they, the, the, the bit of stress that comes from decision-making moves aside and becomes now more of it's a, we're tapping this project, this puzzle together and we start getting these really long emails and like, you know, like all these thoughts and discussions and, and then yeah. really vibing with it. And then when it's over and the house is built and they move in, you've got this great, wonderful friend now that you've gone through all of this with, um, you've shared many personal experiences that, you know, very intimately about their lives. And then two years later, you'll get that like, Hey, let's do this again. You know, we're, yeah. looking, for, we're looking for property. Um, you know, we really enjoyed it when we want to do this again. Um, and so that's that's the really beautiful part because it takes uh, to do it well and certainly in residential with custom client, you know, it's a very empathetic journey where you've got to be in their shoes a lot of the way, um, but you've still got to be able to hold on to the discipline you bring um, to get them the best result because they don't know what they don't know yet. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They don't, they don't realize that there, there are 10,000 decisions that have to be made. Uh, and each one of those can be a very personal decision. You know, like your, the cabinet pulls in your kitchen, you know, something may not yeah. even think that the architect was going to help them make that decision or that, that was going to be a decision that the builder wasn't just going to make on their own. Um, yeah. Whether a door can swing from the left or the right or inwards or outwards or just depends on what you'll have in your hand at that time. Um, you know, and, and the proximity of something to another space, how far will you walk when you come into the space and what will that journey do? What, will it hype you up? Will it relax you? Will it put you 
you know, in what kind of mood, what, what will the space, the, the volumes and the, the shapes and the colors and the views um, change in that, in that journey? Always, uh, that's always such a piece of the journey of, of designing something is getting them to, uh, walking in their shoes and then having them walk in their shoes through the un, um, imagined space, it's, it's the, the imagined space, um, unbuilt but imagined space with you. And, um, you know, being able to go, so you'll be reaching out with your left hand here. <laughs> right. <laughs> or or and, do uh, you, do you want to, uh, uh, do you want to carry your groceries um, and cross the entire house from where you're going to park and dump yeah. them there? What's, what's more important to you, the, uh, uh, not carrying a load of groceries across or, or having a process through the house that you get to en- enjoy that process whenever you come home every day, because you're not carrying groceries every day, but which one of those aspects is going to be more important to you? You know, if the kitchen makes the most sense on the Eastern side of the house, so that when you're making breakfast in the morning, you're getting natural light in there to help wake you up a little bit. Or, you know, do you want uh, to face the West so you get a good sunset? And how is that going to impact where your garage is or where, you know, there's some of those decisions that they don't even realize that are going to be brought up in the design process. and totally critical to who they are as a person. Right. I think this is this is the joy of um, architecture and design is that joy. It's uh, it's it's pulling yourself into the character of that human being that you're working for, and then being able to um, almost like being an actor. You know, you 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 take on all these different values and stuff but you've got all this knowledge that you're going to keep dropping in and then they come along on the journey and as they come along on the journey they learn another little piece and they learn another little piece and it's all opening up and it's all new to them um and you're guiding them through each piece of it but ultimately you're responsible for the budget it's going to be built under as well as the structure that it's going to stand as um and so you've got the knowledge to do that, but it's their journey. You, they're journeying with you on it. You know, one of the one of the most interesting questions that quickly gives you a, a large amount of insight for the small question that it is uh, into a client and their relationship with each other uh, and how they live and, and, and whatnot is, do you guys want to have a separate room for the toilet or do you want your toilet to be just out in the bathroom with the sink and the shower and, 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 you know, yep. no, no privacy in, 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 in that, in that duty there. Uh, and immediately, you know, you get a deep understanding of their relationship of their, of how, how intimate they are with, with their personal life, how, you know, how much they're going to share with you. You know, like it's just a, it's a quick question that gets you a lot of information. <laughs> I've never had anybody else tell me that, but it's one that I ask every time. And it, you are so right. You are so right. Like you just go, whoa. And and I have another one that goes in with that, which is it usually starts with, um, we do, a, you know, here where I live, there's a fair few sort of what I'd call resort style homes where it's kind of, um, you know, your, your, your ensuite may be open to your bedroom. It may be, you might share a view, like an example would be in my own home. Um, my ensuite is completely open to the bedroom. You can stand in the shower and you can look at the view because I look out across the sea and stuff. And you can be in the bed and you can look out at the view. Um, 
and there is no way I want my toilet in that same room, but I do want a toilet in my ensuite. So it's right. the only part that is behind a door right. that's completely <laughs> separated. As yeah, but be. otherwise, yeah, and it, where it, for me, where it should be, yeah, yeah. I'm sure my wife would say that even louder. Yeah, right. I learned a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's the thing, you know. Um, and I say to people, you know, the crazy thing with mine is, is that my wife goes to bed about nine, and I go to bed about midnight. So I pretty much use the uh, the other bathroom in the house most of the time, because right. I often will clean my teeth in there. And she gets up at five and I might not get up till six. So she often cleans her teeth in there in the morning. <laughs> so it's like at my house, when, when we did the ensuite, it was, a, a I would say, a romantic notion. Um, <laughs> we probably could have done a lot better job with it. Right. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. What's the dream versus that, the reality? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And thank God for the learnings. <laughs> that has... <laughs> it's been a fascinating talk, Davey. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, guys, uh, listening to this podcast, check out Davey's work. We will have a link on the uh, Talk Design website. And you get a real insight into his journey and the journey of architecture, and especially in these last sort of like five, ten minutes of the client journey into architecture and why it is such a gift to be able to have an architect um or a designer that actually walks the journey with you like it's special and you know with what davy's studio does there where they create um these special pieces or sometimes structure of the house or sometimes it might be a table or something like that furniture pieces again is a gift beyond uh, what you would get in most places it's a really special thing so Davey, thank you so much for making the time, man. And Lenny, thank you for introducing us because uh, I'm looking forward to uh, going and hanging out in Davey's workshop when I'm back in Austin. Looking forward to it for sure. Thank you much. Cool. Cool, man. Let's talk again soon. Thanks, Adrian. Bye-bye. Have a brilliant day. Cheers, yeah. buddy. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, 
they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.